The upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. John Paz, and with me as always is the star of the show, former WWE Tag Team Champion, eight-time Smoky Mountain Wrestling Tag Team Champion, as well as one of the greatest trainers in the history of professional wrestling. He is the Doctor of Desire, Tom Pritchard. Tom, how are you today? John, I'm doing great today. It's it's always great when I get to wake up in Knoxville and, and go to sleep here too. So yeah, things are going my way as usual. Like a lot of uh, stuff has been going on, kind of uh, in the world of wrestling, as far as the WWE with Undertaker retiring recently and doing you know 30 years of Undertaker didn't kind of go down quite the way I thought it was going to go down. I thought there might be a surprise. I thought he might have one last match, but that was not to be. Well, you know, I I think that uh, the Undertaker has had 30 years of of. Probably as again Stone Cold, Steve Austin said probably the best career in professional wrestling, or at least in WWE. Thirty years in one place with one name, uh, of course, updating the gimmick and, and customizing as he went along in the years. Man, um, I don't know what else he could do, but I I don't know how else it could have come off better. I thought that. Uh, Maybe it was a little underwhelming, but then in hindsight and listening to the thought process that went into it, uh, I read something that Booker T wrote saying that the reason they got everybody out of the ring was you don't want to give a bunch of old wrestlers microphones or, or mic time because they'll be there talking all night. And anything they said, really, I, I do agree with this, anything they said couldn't surpass what The Undertaker had to say, and it was uh, probably best... Uh, doing it that way, there, there, there's no right, wrong, or uh, other way to do it except the, the the way you're feeling at the time. So you're right. I I, I kind of thought maybe, uh, and of course it's always left open. No nobody in the wrestling business ever says ever says the word never. So never say never, and uh, hopefully. The Undertaker will be used sparingly and accordingly as the years go on because he's always going to be with WWE, and and that's going to be interesting to see uh, what happens now that he has given his farewell address, so to speak, after 30 years at the Survivor Series. 
Yes, and speaking of the Survivor Series, we're going to go back this week all the way to 1993. It was, yes, crazy year back then. It was November 24th, to be exact, 1993, from Boston, Massachusetts. We're going to go to the Boston Garden. Survivor Series 93 was a good one. The attendance was 5,500. The buys, the buy rate, was a .82, which equates to about 250,000 buys. Pretty on par with what we talked about last week with uh, Survivor Series 94. A lot better than Survivor Series 95, but maybe down just a bit from 92. And then I think every year almost kind of seemed like it was going down uh, for uh, for a while there until Steve Austin comes around. But let's stick to Survivor Series 93. What do you think about that? 15,000 paid in, in attendance and 250,000 buys. Look, there's no doubt it was a great card, but uh, what I remember the most is the Boston crowd hated our match. I mean, <laughs> we, we came up, the Rock and Roll Express and the Heavenly Bodies, we had done this match, I couldn't tell you how many times, but we had done something similar. and We, we had what we thought was just going to be a, <laughs> a slam-bang uh, match of high spots and whatever, but man, the Boston crowd is brutal. I think the Northeast crowds are, are pretty much brutal. It might have something to do with the water you drink. I don't know, whatever it is. Or they just, they, you know, um, the one thing I did appreciate about Boston is they will, and, and with the Garden fans too, they will tell you when they love you or hate you, and they'll tell you when they want you to go away too. So at least they have that passion, and I can appreciate that. But at the time, oh, my gosh, uh, it was one of those things where everything we did was met with a deafening silence or something like that. So uh, while it was probably a, a pretty good match, it just got over like a fart in church. And, I'm, oh, my God. Um but but we were happy to be there at the time again, getting getting new eyeballs on us, and uh, uh, whether that was <laughs> that was good or bad, I don't know. But anyway, that's that's what I remember most about Survivor Series 1993. I mean, the rest of it is all kind of uh, immaterial to me, you know. It is interesting that Northeast crowd and obviously the Boston Garden. It was a big stop and grab for the WBF. They didn't take that Southern style, I guess, that night, which is very weird to me. No, I don't. I don't know if it's that weird or not. I mean, because you have, uh, I, you know, look, I, I've I've thought about this. Looking back on all the performers, all the professional wrestlers, and and uh, sports teams, and and entertainers who have come through. You've you've had Bruno for so long, and prior to that, Buddy Rogers, and prior to that, who knows, Lundus or whoever, and and I, I think the fans got so used to that style, and it's a different style. It's a gritty punch kick style, and um, it it had a flavor to it. And Bruno San Martino ruled the Northeast for God. Uh, over a decade, well over a decade, and I don't, I don't know that there's anybody, uh, including Hulk Hogan, that that ever got that kind of loyalty and that kind of reaction whenever Bruno went. Uh, when it, whenever Bruno went out to to, to the 
the crowds of Madison Square Garden, the Boston Garden, Philadelphia, uh, wherever it may be, Bruno was revered. And uh, the same thing would happen in the South. I saw Bruno come in to the summit in Houston, Texas, and wrestle Mike York. First time I'd seen Bruno. And the reaction certainly wasn't one like the, like he got in the garden, I'll tell you that. But he was also wrestling Mike York. So, uh, you know, I, I think it was a combination of just we, we didn't have we, we didn't have what they were wanting to, to react to that night. So, um, for whatever reason, man, I can sit here and make up excuses all night long, but it wouldn't change the fact that, well, we went out and worked our ass off. Uh, nobody really cared. Which goes, which goes back real quick. Goes back to the old saying that uh, uh, it doesn't really matter uh, how much you do; it, it matters how you do what you do. And the people have to be into you, and there has to have there has to be a connection. There has to be something that the fans who pay want to come see. And uh, as we found out, eventually it, it turned into Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels, and that was right after the Hulk Hogan, uh, whole cartoon 80s um, part of what was going on in the business. So, you know, it, it, if, you, if we're going to talk about Survivor Series 93, by God, I'll tell you right now, I know how our match was. And the interesting part about that is it's for the Smoky Mountain titles, so, you know, it's like, okay, you know, it's kind of interesting and odd in a way. It's like Smoky Mountain titles being defended on WF TV. So, okay, maybe the North crowd is going to be a little against it just just for that reason. It's like, you know, like, okay, this is weird, Smoky Mountain titles. But you throw on top of it, you guys had the match for WCW back in February of, of 93, February 21st, Super Bowl three, but it was in Asheville, North Carolina, and it was kind of a schmazz finish and, and maybe isn't what – it could have been, but it was well more regarded, a lot better match, just because of the crowd reaction. I mean, the crowd was digging that match at Super Bowl. Yeah, yeah, but again, it was Asheville, North Carolina, and you're right. There, there is a difference. There really is a difference in the style and um, uh, presentation. And of course, I, I think even in the back in the back of our heads, we knew that. But. <sighs> But but that's the kind of matches the rock and roll was having. Uh, wasn't just with us. I mean, if it was a Midnight Express, uh, I think they would have gone out and tore the house down. But um, it, it's just one of those things that in Asheville, North Carolina, the rock and roll was over, so over in that area, and uh, they didn't have to do anything really except walk to the ring. So in Boston, we were being introduced to. Uh, a whole new audience, a whole new uh, attitude, I guess, than it was in the South. I mean, the South likes a lot of, you know, fighting and scuffling and blood and guts, and and the North likes a lot of kicking and punching and beating the hell out of each other. And uh, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know how else to describe it except it was <laughs> it was certainly a contrast from. Uh, from what we got in Asheville, from from going to Fall Brawl to, uh, oh, whatever the hell it is, uh, Boston Gardens, I forgot for a minute. There you go. Yes, the Super Brawl was definitely more of the uh, more of the acclaimed match. I don't know if you really look at it, if it was necessarily better, if you kind of take away the crowd reaction, but obviously that's a huge 
part of it is, is how the crowd is going to react and take to the match and take to the wrestlers. It really is, and that's why I feel really bad for the guys right now having to work in the Thunderdome and uh, the other place, Daly's place, I guess, AEW. and um, uh, Everybody's doing their best to make it work, and uh, that's all you can ask. I mean... <laughs> Uh, it's it's so much better working with a live crowd, live audience, get a live reaction, and uh, once again equating it to a stand-up comic or anybody who does live uh, performance in in front of an audience, you need that instant feedback, and that's that's what's missing. And um, it was kind of like that in Boston. We didn't get any feedback. We just got a symphony of silence. So. Uh, but the match was was pretty good if you go back and watch it if you're into wrestling. But if you're not, then skip it. Yeah, it's definitely it's excellent. Uh, but it's just funny how the crowd maybe just doesn't quite get it. So yeah, uh, I don't know if we got it. Maybe if we got it, we would have worked a match they would have liked better. But either way, uh, <laughs> either way, the Smoky Mountain Championship Tag Team Division was defended on a. WWF at the time card, and that was something new, odd, strange, and out of the ordinary, but uh, uh, to make it mean something, I think somebody really had to care about it, and I'm not so sure, as we've already said. And to throw this out there, you finally get a win at the Survivor Series after getting decimated in 94, 95. <laughs> well... You know you can't lose them all, I guess, huh? But I was on I was on my way to, but I, I guess that night was uh, fate was on my side, so so I got that going for me, I guess. So let's just run through the card. First was a dark match. Billy Gunn defeats the Brooklyn Brawler in about minutes. I don't know if you have anything to say about those two fine wrestlers. Well, I, I think it's just. Uh, pretty much uh, a testament to how Billy Gunn um, rose through the ranks. I mean, there were times when he was on the first match and, and opening match and dark match and things like that, but later on in his career, he he uh, latched on and caught on with uh, DX and New Age Outlaws, and so everybody was trying to find their way back then, but you, th this is a classic example of, you know, starting at the bottom and working your way up right back up to the top and Hall of Fame uh, performer that he is today. So, and Billy's always been competitive. Billy's always been outspoken and, and sure of himself, confidence, which you have to have. And uh, I always liked Billy, and, and even with his attitude. I mean, he's got this... This, he can be a serious and, and stern and uh, nasty guy sometimes. But at the same time, uh, I think he goes back to his passion for the business and for, for doing what he loves. So, in uh, Brooklyn Brawler, Steve Lombardi, hell, he'd been around forever. And uh, I think his, his career speaks for itself, too. It's interesting how many guys, when they're kind of coming up or new to WWF, wrestle the brawler and kind of you know, make a loop with him or wrestle him a bunch. He must have been very valued kind of backstage where maybe they would say, hey, how is this guy in the ring? How is, how is this guy coming along? Is that kind of his role, basically, almost like he, he's going to be the 
the I don't know, it's a human resources guy, so to speak, in the ring where it's like, all right, how how did The Rock do? Because he you know, would wrestle The Rock very early on. So it's like, is he kind of getting the the opinions for for the agents and for Vince and for Pat Patterson? Well, yeah, at, at that time, and and there were a lot of guys uh, who were in that spot uh, throughout throughout the years. So, yeah, Steve was was one of the guys that. If they wanted somebody to have a good match or want to see if someone could listen and have a good match, they, they would put him with Steve. And uh, he was very valuable during that time. And they they gave him that, that opportunity to to uh, go out and see what he could do with them. So it was good on for, for Steve, definitely. And it was good for the guys he was working with because uh, Steve knew his role. Steve knew that if he could get a great match out of these guys – um, they would appreciate it, and he could come back and tell the office that this guy is coachable. He'll listen, and that's really what you want, especially in a, in a new guy coming in the territory. You want somebody who'll listen, and you want somebody who will tell you if he does or doesn't, and somebody who knows the ins and outs and uh, isn't afraid to put somebody over in the best way he can. And I think everybody had the confidence in Steve to know that he could. As far as the actual card is concerned, the first match is a Survivor Series elimination eight-man tag. Marty Jannetty, Razor Ramon, 1-2-3-Kid, and the surprise of the macho man, Randy Savage, defeat Adam Baum, Diesel, Irwin R. Scheister, and Rick Martell with Harvey Wimpleman. It goes about 27 minutes. Kind of an underrated team looking back, Razor. Randy, one, two, three, kid, Janetti. I mean, it's a pretty damn good team. Great team. Yeah, you had uh, again. Uh, kid was just coming off the win of uh, over Razor, and and not just coming off, but a little earlier, obviously. And now he's on the same team uh, with Savage and Marty. So uh, you had some big names on this one, and uh, you had big names on the other side, obviously with uh, IRS Diesel. Rick Martell and Adam Baum. So uh, I I don't know what else to say about the match. I, I don't believe we were watching this because we were getting ready for our slam bang, knock them down, get them back up type match ourselves. It's interesting with Macho Man because he's kind of like the surprise guy. They bring him in, gets a gigantic, huge reaction like you'd expect from the Macho Man. But feels like he's being phased out at this point. They want him more as a commentator. Obviously, you know, he's, he's been doing Raw, he's been doing pay-per-views, yeah, WrestleMania, so, so on and so forth as far as being an announcer. Seems like they're trying to phase him out from the ring. Was that surprising to you at that point? Because he's still, if you look, he has about seven, eight years left in, in his body as far as some pretty good wrestling. Yeah, I I was uh, a little surprised to hear that when I did hear it, and I didn't hear it at the time, but it was obvious that he was doing more commentary at that time. Um, I don't, I, I didn't know they were trying to phase him out back then, but uh, I thought Randy was in great shape. And knowing what I know now, uh, especially once you get to that age, you, you can, you're going to feel the aches and pains and you're going to feel different. But Randy was still uh, passionate about the business, still had that performer's, ego and the performer's drive and uh, I, I didn't couldn't understand why you'd want to push him out except for the fact that you just wanted younger guys and a younger generation uh, to to come up next and the, the problem is 
uh, when you have a young generation coming up, you don't want too many of the older guys hanging around. And that was something I heard a long time ago from Gary Hart, who right around 1979-80 was seeing the uprising of the Von Erichs and the younger guys coming in the business. And he had guys like Killer Carl Von Krupp, Al Madrill, and... Uh, and Don Jardine, some of the older crew who'd been around, you know, for a long time, it was time to to move on. That's not always easy to tell somebody, but especially, I think during 1993, Savage was still in top shape and still ready to go with anybody. And uh, for whatever reason, you know, sometimes I guess they get it in their head that you don't belong in in the same category as. Uh, as as the younger generation coming up. So, yeah, I was a little shocked. It is kind of one of those things where you're like looking at it, you're like, yeah, it's kind of weird. Um, Macho Man, obviously, probably the biggest name uh, on the roster, the biggest star, kind of being phased out from in-ring, but then they bring him out there. They prop him up, they bring him out, and he looks great, does great, huge reaction. He eliminates Diesel, and then he gets eliminated by IRS, kind of surprisingly. Um, then Ramon eliminates IRS. Ramon uh, is out of there. Um, then One Two Three Kid eliminates Rick the Model Martel, and Janetti eliminates Adam Bomb. The sole survivors are Janetti and the One Two Three Kid. Bit of a surprise if you just look at that team and say, "Oh, yeah, they're going to win." You you think Savage and Razor are going to get the win, but no, Janetti and the One Two Three Kid end up getting the victory. Well, I think back then too, uh, it wasn't as predictable, and I believe that's what what the idea was, and that's what they were going for, is doing something you wouldn't expect. So, sure, uh, Razor and Macho winning would, would be exactly what you expect, so let's give them something else. And uh, I thought it was a great call. Macho would eventually go to WCW in 1994, a little bit later on in 94. Still was a draw, still was having great matches. Uh, helped WCW, obviously, immensely, and helped them win the war for about two years. They say it's 83 weeks. It's actually a lot longer than that. Um, WCW would win, I believe it was 104 out of 117 weeks, something like something crazy. It's basically mm. over two years of dominance uh, for WCW. But he was definitely, I mean, a huge part of that. When you say, like, oh, um, you know, to maybe a, a non-fan or a fan that used to watch something at that point in time, you're like, oh, by the way, uh, Macho, oh, yeah, he's in WWF. No, no, he's on the other the other station with Hulk Hogan. So it's like one of those things that was like, wow, I wonder how many eyeballs they took away from WWF and went to WCW just because Macho Man, who everyone knows from, from wrestling, but also from Slim Jim and other things, it's like, wow, he's one of those huge, iconic names. You can't let him out of your grasp. You know what I mean? Well, it's almost like yeah. uh, Undertaker on AEW. So it's like you can't let that happen. No, no, I was gonna. I, I wouldn't think so. And, and and again, Randy was still snapping into Slim Jims, and and he still wanted to wrestle. And if you have that passion to to still want to be in the spotlight and still be in the ring, and you still have that uh, drive, I I see no reason why not. But uh, obviously, the powers that be did, and um, I'm sure everybody knows the story that he called Vince. You know, left a message on Vince's phone, and uh, that he was going to WCW. So, and when, he, and when that happened, uh, I'm I'm pretty sure everyone was shocked. I was shocked. That I didn't think that would happen. But uh, there's there's a lot of things in wrestling that that happen um, that you never think will happen or could happen. So, uh, I've learned. I've become a little jaded as time has gone on. That that 
anything is possible and uh never never say never ha <laughs> that's one we don't say yeah you sound like uh Vincent Kennedy McMahon right there <laughs> well I'll never say never no you can never say never and I I, I do truly believe that but um I, I I've been so determined and certain on on a few things in life and only come to find out that uh, it wasn't as certain and determined as I thought it was. So, uh, and, and with a guy like Savage, especially who who always had a name value and will always have a name value, eventually was put in the Hall of Fame. And uh, my gosh, you know his his legacy will live forever. There there will never be another Randy Macho Man Savage, and uh, that's because they don't make them like that anymore. And I don't know if uh, if they would, if anyone would anyone would even know what to think of a of a macho man, Randy Savage these days. So the next match up in the Survivor Series, another eight man elimination tag: Bret Hart, Bruce Hart, Keith Hart, and Owen Hart defeat Shawn Michaels, the Black Knight, the Blue Knight, and the Red Knight. At about 31 minutes, this is very, very storyline heavy as far as Brett and Owen and really planting the seed. This is one of those things where it's like, man, like if you could capture something like this and do it in today's wrestling, I mean, it would just be unbelievable just because it's like such a great story to be told. So Owen eliminates the Black Knight. Brett eliminates the Red Knight. Owen eliminates the Blue Knight. Shawn Michaels eliminates Brett, excuse me, eliminates Owen after Brett by accident, kind of gets hit by Owen, and then and Michaels rolls up um, Owen after the Brett altercation, leaving Owen pissed off and really, really just uh, besides himself. Then uh, Michaels gets eliminated, so Brett, Bruce, and Keith Hart win, but the whole thing is that Owen is the only Hart that didn't win, and he blames Brett, saying it's Brett's fault, so he comes back down to ringside, and he's not happy, pulls Brett down from the rope, and they get a little bit of, of a shoving match, so uh, it's one of those things. It's such a great storyline, and it seems so real at the time, and it was so well done. Well, once again, I think uh, during that time, there was a little more thought and there was a lot more time probably to uh, have a storyline laid out like that. And these days, with everything moving so fast, and I don't know this to be fact, I'm just surmising here too, but with everything moving as fast as it is and having to have live TV or having, I don't even know how many writers they have these days, um, <sighs> A lot of things can get muddled and muddied up, and uh, instead of thinking about how to lay a program out and letting it develop, uh, you also have to have the guys who can do it, do it. And I don't know if there's anybody who has actually studied the way things were done and can modify them or amplify them or whatever they need to do, to make it work. So back in 1993, I know there weren't writers, there were bookers, and there was Pat and Vince and Bruce, and uh, I don't believe Russo was here at this time. Maybe he was. Um, he no, would probably no. do it. No, he'd probably no, do it in the magazine. magazine yep. Yeah, yeah, but he wasn't involved in that. But this, again, when you have guys like Brett and Owen who who <laughs> knew how to work understood how to work and grew up in the business and loved the business and had a passion for it, then 
they take the idea and make it come to life. And they knew how to do it because they lived it and they felt it. And they were really brothers. And and I'm sure there was a, a rivalry and a dynamic there that, that went along with uh, not only being brothers but being in the business and having to fight their other brothers growing up and fighting for everything they had in the house. So um, I think the reason we don't see a lot of that today it's because a lot of these guys, a lot of the guys, through no fault of their own, really don't understand the storytelling aspect of what professional wrestling is. They tell stories, but is it as convincing? Uh, is it diluted? I don't know. I don't know what the answer is there. But I will agree with you that Brett and uh, Owen had a unique and authentic rivalry that people could get into, and, and they were both tremendous workers on all fronts. They could cut promos and and be believable. And there was that uh, that that family connection that if you have ever had a family member you didn't care for or or a couple of them, then then you can understand that. You can understand the big brother being an asshole or the little brother being a little turd. You know, I mean. Uh, it, it, it's a family deal, and I don't think there's anything that gets more real than family. And and Brett and Owen did it great. Such a great start to this rivalry with them, and, and such a great uh, part of the feud. Shawn Michaels is the captain of the other team. This is kind of the very beginning of a great. It's not really the beginning because they did have the, that main event match as Fire Series '92, but this is kind of like. I guess part of the beginning of the Brett-Shawn Michaels rivalry, which is one of the greatest feuds of all time. It feels like Brett has a lot of those because Brett Owen is one of the greatest feuds ever. But Michaels kind of takes over as the captain of the team because of the stuff going on with Jerry Lawler. And, and, and obviously, you know, he had some pending issues going on. So the Black Knight, the Blue Knight, and the Red Knight, I don't know if you remember who each one of them were. Was one, <coughs> pardon me, was one Jeff Gaylord? Yes. Excuse me. Uh, was the other one Valentine? Yes. Um, and the other one was Red Bastine. No, <laughs> shit, no, no. I don't know the. I don't know the other one. Brooklyn Brawler. Brooklyn oh, of Barber. course. Okay, there you go. Well, I mean, uh, I don't think you can get a better team. I mean, you had no. uh, sure, of course not. I mean, the yeah. Black Knight, oh. the Red Knight, and the Blue Knight. You had I'm Valentine. Sorry, yeah. yeah. I'm sorry. It was. I think actually it was Barry Horowitz. I'm thinking. I'm looking at my cheer about Brooklyn Berlin. No, actually, I think I believe it was Barry Horowitz. Not, okay, not could have been because yeah, Lombardi yeah. was in the first match. Yeah, Brooklyn. yeah. And I'm I'm thinking of that first match. Yeah, it was yeah. Uh, Horowitz. If you if you look back, um, it's interesting. Valentine, you know, a little older. You know, maybe not not his past self. Gaylord, a guy from USWA that they're maybe looking at of doing something with, could be one of those like Kane scenarios where you look get a look at this big guy. You think you do something with him. Nothing really happens with him. Uh, they don't really do anything with the Knights kind of going forward because it was really kind of going to be Lawler's deal. But I just wanted to see if you could remember who they were, and it was Valentine Horowitz and Gaylord. You almost, you know, you had two and three, not bad. Well, almost. I remember Jeff was there for a little bit, but um, as happens with some people who get in that environment, uh, they don't always know how to uh, react or conduct themselves, and I don't know that Jeff knew how to react or conduct himself after that match or after that environment, because he wasn't there 
much longer. In fact, I don't know if he was there after that match. So that happens sometimes. Yeah, he really wasn't. Was he ever? I guess maybe you you wouldn't maybe know, but he was never a guy that was going to do something in the business. There wasn't like well, thought after or talked about. Yeah, no, no, no. Jeff was Jeff was a guy. I, I was around him a little bit in USWA, and he was a big, strong guy, no doubt. But this business attracts some some pretty interesting characters as, as you've seen through the years and Jeff was certainly um an interesting character i just don't know that he had the temperament or the attitude to make his way past uh either USWA or places like being the night it's a survivor series he was he had all the tools except there was something missing, and it could have been a brain cell or two. And, um, <laughs> yeah, Jeff Jeff could be, you know, I, I certainly can tell uh, some ambitious stories, if you will, but Jeff was uh, even farther out of the galaxy than I was. And uh, for me to say that, I, I, I would think he... He he just wasn't. Uh, I don't know that for fact, but I don't think he was very reliable in some cases, and uh, uh, not not always somebody you could uh, trust in the ring. I guess is what I've heard through the years. Hey, and Barry Horowitz, he just had to wait two years. He'd become the captain of his own Survivor Series team. You see, you never say never. Never in a million years would that happen, but it did. So you you just have to cross your fingers and and keep. Uh, Keep going. The next match we talked about earlier, Smoking Mountain Wrestling Tag Team title match. We mentioned the Heavenly Bodies, of course, defeat the Rock and Roll Express in not the match of the night, we'll just say. But I liked it nevertheless. So, uh, but we'll we'll just say that it was. Uh, well, yeah, it yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and then and that was that that was it is what it is, baby. Uh, we that was a match that uh, you know the next day we came we flew back into uh, Knoxville and had to do a show oh, somewhere in Kentucky with, with Tracy, and, and that's when Tracy went nuts. So it was right after this match, after we went out there and did what we could do and got what we could get and come back, and then Tracy Smothers went berserk on me. So, yeah, good weekend for me. I believe that was Thanksgiving Thunder. Yeah, well, maybe. <laughs> you know, I don't. I don't recall the theme uh, of the card that night, but I do remember I felt some thunder, and uh, it was coming down loud and hard. We got past it though. It was just the infamous uh, brawl grapple, in the gravel. Grapple no, in the grapple gravel. in the gravel. Yes, it was. Yeah, it sure right. was, man. Yep, yep. So after getting. Uh, uh, decimated in Boston and uh no one <laughs> no one uh dared cheer or yell or I think that's when they got their they took their twenty minute nap during our match, I guess. Hell I don't know. I don't want I don't want to keep demanding or demeaning our match because it was a good match. It just it's those damn people in Boston. No disrespect to Boston and just have to point some other fingers, I guess. You guys would lose a tag team gang fight to the Bruise Brothers, Ron and Don Harris, the next night. After oh, winning, that... after winning, you guys get beat up. Wait a minute. Wait, uh, but that was, where was that at? 
So Knoxville is the second night. The, the first night where you guys were back was in Hazard, Kentucky. Yeah, Hazard. Then, Hazard yeah. then you went to Knoxville. Then you went to Barberville. And then, of, of course. course, and then of course your favorite place of all time, Johnson City, Tennessee. Of course, of course, of course. All those towns had had some uh, true blue loyal wrestling fans, and and you know that that's again talking about working in front of no crowds these days. I mean, the the people around Kentucky, Tennessee, uh, West Virginia, all the all the people around there are true blue wrestling fans, and they would come out and cheer and yell and, and do what they're supposed to do is have fun. So, anyway. Do those that, fans care? Like, let's say you guys won the titles on TV. You'd be Rock and Roll Express. You won a WWF match. When you go to a town like let's just say Hazard, Kentucky, that next night. Do they care that you won on TV? or I mean, is there more heat on you, less, the same, or they don't give two shits if you were on TV for uh, WWF? I, you know, I, I really would, I would think, especially because we were plugging it on Smoky Mountain and everybody was aware of it, obviously. It was that time in the business where things were changing and it was obvious that WWE was uh, the leading brand and we weren't uh saying any different you know so now since we infiltrated uh i think there might have been a different look or a different way of thinking but um we didn't go out we weren't baby faces so i didn't hear a lot of uh crowd reaction or or uh interaction i mean when we came to the ring we had the same amount of heat i thought as we always did so but we were working with the Rock and Roll, too, and, and the Bruise Brothers. They hated us over the Bruise Brothers, too. So, The next match on the card, Survivor Series Elimination 8-Man Tag, Men on a Mission, of course, Mabel and Moe, and the Bushwhackers, Butch and Luke with Oscar, defeat Bam Bam Bigelow, Bastion Booger, and the Head Shrinkers, Fatu and Samu with Afa and Luna Bashan in about 11 minutes. I think you'll infamously remember they're all dressed up as doinks. So, you know, that was very sports entertainment e, I guess you could say. Well, uh, yeah, it, it's certainly during the sports entertainment um, period. Uh, why would you go out as doinks and dinks? Well, because. And um, Bastion Booger uh, and... The head shrinkers along with Bam Bam. I mean, I, I I'm almost I I'm I am I'm I'm speechless on this one because looking at it, uh, how how else could you describe or help prescribe doinks versus guys like Bam Bam? And head shrinkers. You know, Bash and Booger is Bash and Booger, but uh, it was cartoon, 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 and uh, just going out there and having fun. So I, I really, um, I have nothing to to say about that because I think we were in the back going, yeah, that was a great match, guys. Thanks. So the four dinks, uh, oof, the four doinks. Yeah, yeah, Luke eliminates Samu. Mabel eliminates Bash and Booger. Butch eliminates Fatu. Butch, Luke, Mabel, and Mo eliminate Bam Bam Bigelow all together. The survivors are every member of the team. Of course, Men on the Mission and the Bushwhackers. 
the crowd was kind of, I guess, into it, I guess you could say. You know, it was much more for the, the younger crowd and younger audience. This, to me, is, is a bit of a throwaway and kind of just uh, you know, that, that match before they made that. Maybe the popcorn match or whatever you want to call it. For me, it was one of those things where it's like, Ah, I wish Bam Bam would have just beat the, you know beat all the asses and well, we'll there move you on. go. But that, yeah, that, but that's that's what I'm saying. We just had a Smoky Mountain title change, and all of a sudden you come out with the poor Doigs, and the crowd's going nuts. So, so mm-hmm. you tell me, man. Mm-hmm. That's that's the taste of the Boston crowd. No problem. I mean, uh, whatever flavor you like, there are different flavors of ice cream. So that that's that's okay. I mean, but my goodness, um, you know, I I, I like pizza some people don't so whatever the thing about WBF at this point is and you could say oh you know it wasn't that great during this time period they actually were setting up storylines for Wrestlemania at Survivor Series Brett and Owen there, there was kind of a, you know dropping the seeds doink obviously with this whole storyline with Bam Bam Bigelow and Luna Vachon they're dropping the seeds of that feud so it's like they're they are building towards WrestleMania already. So to me, it's like, okay, maybe some of the stuff, you know, is great, the Brett Owen stuff. Man, then maybe some of the stuff stinks, the uh, the, the doing stuff, but it is all building and they are having storylines set months and months in advance. You don't see that too much anymore. I know I said before about the writing and stuff, but I at least like the effort. Like, wow, this is actually building towards something. Ah, look at that. Yeah, it, it was. It, it was a great effort. And uh, once again, I think it was a different mindset. Certainly, you had guys who had been in the business for a long time and still fell in line with professional wrestling, even though it was more colorful and it was more pronounced and it was a, it was a cartoon. But you had your serious parts with your Brett and your Owens and, and things like that. So uh, it, 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 it was just a matter of... And I still think it's a matter of who has the last word, who has the last say, who can convince the the, the man in charge that this is the way to go. So, <laughs> pardon me, uh, that just doesn't exist today because the guys doing it today were watching this stuff growing up. And times change, and, and attitudes change, the cultures change, and um it was just a whole different vibe back then, too. So when you had Pat Patterson, who was one of the, the greatest minds in professional wrestling, um, coming up with a lot of this stuff and following through with the finishes of a lot of this stuff, it it was a different uh, hands-on approach. And the guys today are writing TV, not necessarily for wrestling, but uh, TV and um, sitcom writers and promo writers and things like that. Back then it wasn't. There weren't a whole lot of scripting back then for the guys because they felt it and they they came from the heart when they talked. So that's one reason. It's it's not the same, uh, but nothing stays the same. So that was 1993. How many years ago was that, 30? 27. 20, 20, 27, close to mm-hmm. it, yeah. So a lot can happen in 27 years. A lot can happen in five years. And as we've seen, a lot can happen uh, in just last year. So, yeah, I think it was just a different attitude, different way of approaching things. And today, uh, could it work? Hell, I don't know. It just it, it would be a matter of what the 
paying audience wanted or what the viewing audience wanted. And I don't see any people uh, on today's program, either one of them, who come close to matching anybody on this card who could even elicit or get the same emotion and feeling from a crowd that anybody on this card can. So, um, I don't know. You can prove me wrong, but I don't know how. So, really, kind of the only guys that are still around, obviously, as far as like writing and producing, you know, the the owner, the chairman, Vince is still there, and obviously, brother Brucey is still there and around. But it's it's kind of a much different ball game today, (laughs) obviously, than it was back then. I mean, it's completely different. Completely different. It's a publicly traded company today, too. Back then in '93, you have to remember, uh, it was not public. It was privately owned. It wasn't publicly traded back then, and, and they had a little more uh, say so in in what they were going to do because it was it was a family business. Now, you are beholden to the stockholders and uh, chairmen's and and board members and all these these elements that uh, weren't weren't around back in 1993. So different place, different time, no doubt. Uh, some people say it was better then. Some people say it's better now. You know, it, I think it's all a matter of taste, and I think it's all a matter of eras and who was running things back then. So we, we can't compare because it's really not, not fair to do so. You know, we we uh, we did things a lot differently in the, in the 80s than we did in the 90s, and it's more so... Uh, even in in the two thousands, there are things that are being done a hell of a lot different. So, right, wrong, or indifferent, it's it's the way it is, and everybody's still looking for that magic bullet or magic potion or, or magic spell, whatever you want to say, to uh, get the uh, magic and unpredictability back, if it's possible. And your main event of the evening, Survivor Series Elimination, eight-man tag match, the All-Americans, Lex Luger, Rick Steiner, Scott Steiner, and The Undertaker with Paul Bearer, which, looking back, everyone always talks about best Survivor Series teams of all time. That's got to be talked about as being one of the best. Undertaker, the Steiners, and Luger, that is just an unbelievable team. Holy moly. Defeat the foreign fanatics, Yokozuna, Ludwig Borga, Crush, Jacques Rougeau with James E. Cornette, Johnny Polo, and Mr. Fuji. I even like the the heel team, too. Um, obviously, you know, Yoko, Ludwig, and Crush are all big monsters uh, in, in their own right and big heels. So, I mean, I, I really, I and even looking back, I really like this match. And just I like all the guys in the match, too. Uh, you know, Ludwig Borga was an interesting guy. He, he was uh, from Finland, right? Yes. Yeah, Finland. Okay, I remember that. He was, uh, mm. he he could be a little stern. He could be a little crabby and and crotchety and and uh, uh, always in a bad mood. But at the same time, uh, he he could be funny without knowing he was being funny. I guess. And as a big guy, I didn't want to piss him off, but but sometimes people would come up and just mess with him and. Or, or whatever, uh, just to poke the bear, if you will. And um, he walked in one day. I'm, I remember this. I, they used to have a, a girl who would cut everybody's hair, the makeup girl, whatever. And I was getting a haircut. And he walked in, 
I was walking by me, and we had talked a few times, just casual conversation and nothing big. But when he when he was walking up, I said, I want my hair to be just like that. And he looked right at me and said, you have to have balls to wear this hair. And I just kept walking. <laughs> I went, yeah, I guess so. But, you know. <laughs> Uh, not not always a not always a, in the best of mood, but he could be funny. He could be entertaining sometimes in the back. So he was interesting. And Yoko, look, uh, I, I've known Yoko for shoot a long time, even before I got there. And he, for a big man, for as big as he was, he really could move. He could do stuff that that a man his size shouldn't be able to do. And and you had Crush, who who's another big guy that just just moved incredibly nimble for his height and his his size. And then you had uh, Jacques, and uh, <laughs> so it was Jacques, Yoko, Ludwig, and Crush. Yep. Uh, you know, so you, you got some some pretty big guys there working against. Uh, you're right, the Steiners and Lex and Taker. That's that's a a handful. No matter who they're they're working against, so uh, no doubt everybody enjoyed the match. Uh, the guys in the ring, and uh, no doubt I think they they knew what they had to do to 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 make the main event worth watching. So uh, it's interesting that um, back in those days, the Steiner brothers. Man, talk about a team. Uh, they, they they could go with anybody, and they, they can make anybody look good or they can make anybody look bad, and it was all up to them. You know, you could help the situation, but if they wanted to play with you, they could, and they could make you uh, – uh, they could stink the joint out if they wanted to. But I think in this match, everybody knew what, what the goal was, and they all uh, they all accomplished it. Because you're right, this was leading to WrestleMania, and this was leading for – to, to matches down the road and uh that that was the way things were done back then. So kinda hard to reminisce and not not think, boy, I tell you, if we could only do that today, just think how much better it'd be. But then again we don't know because the, the, the people may not be clamoring for it. Who knows? Ludwig Borga one of the guys, especially at that point, I thought he'd main vendor written all over him. Just his look he does short but sweet promos, uh, the way he was getting booed out of the buildings, just the way he carried himself, his, his theme song. You know, it didn't have to necessarily be the, the best work in the world, but he had one of the best punches. Maybe it was actually a little bit real, a little bit stiff, and a little bit snug, but he's one of those guys who's like, man, this guy just looks like a star. He almost just like looks like a main eventer. I always loved Ludwig Borga. Yeah, he, he, he certainly had that main event look, and he was a main eventer. He was that guy. Uh, he, he, he had been in the... Uh, Finnish Army is that what it? Uh, yeah, I think he was in the army in Finland, and, and he was a boxing champion over there. Boxing too. champion too. Yeah, he was a badass. He really was. And and uh, like I said, sometimes you could he, you could talk to him, and he would be uh, cordial. And other times he would be that crass and and gruff, short Ludwig Borga. That, that you saw on TV. And, and, and once again, I think that says it all for all the guys back then. It wasn't guys playing a part. It was guys who were the part with their, the volume just turned up. And uh, Jock, Yoko, Borga, Crush, Brian Adams, man, they were all real life, authentic characters. And, 
their persona took place in the back too, as much as it did in the front. And that was where it was so much fun. And that's why it was such a great business to be in back then. And, and it's still a great business to be in, but it's just not, nothing stays the same. But the one thing I think should be a constant, you should enjoy what you're doing and you should be having fun doing it. And uh, while it is a lot of hard work, it can be a lot of fun. So those guys were having fun. And when you have the Steiners in there with Taker and Lex, all of them were great friends. And uh, that's what made it even more special. And that's what made it uh, such a great match for everybody to see and be a part of. So Ludwig Borga eliminates Rick Steiner. Crush gets eliminated. Then Lex Luger eliminates Jacques Rougeau. Then Yokozuna eliminates Scott Steiner. Yokozuna and The Undertaker, who are kind of continuing their feud, which will you know, basically continue on to the Royal Rumble of 94. And then, like we talked about last week, we'll go all the way to the next year of Survivor Series 94. Obviously, Undertaker is going to have an injury before then, but uh, basically that feud will end a year from this event, which is just great storytelling and build and booking for sure. So they get double DQ. They're both out of there. It leaves Lex Luger alone one-on-one with the big villain, Ludwig Borga. Luger eliminates him and wins as the sole survivor. So it seems like the Lex Express is going to continue on. So you think, because he's going to co-win Royal Rumble with Bret Hart and then go out to WrestleMania and lose to Yoko. Obviously, Bret goes on to the main event after losing to Owen in the opening match and he beats Yokozuna for the world title, and then the rest is history, as they say. But it's interesting here, Luger gets the big win. He beats Borga, who is undefeated at this point, who had just beaten the undefeated Tatanka. So, I mean, he was really getting a, a bit of a push. They kind of not end Borga, because he still could have been, you know, perhaps pushed after this, but an injury to his foot and ankle really set him back, and then he was gone from WWE. But are you feeling Lex Express here, or do you think that they killed him so badly by not winning the title over the summer at SummerSlam against Yokozuna. I got to tell you, I wasn't sure how that Lex Express was going to turn out because um, I I didn't know Lex real well back then, but I had been out with Lex a couple times and, and uh, socialized, oh gosh, four or five times, you know, when we were in the same hotel or, or same wherever, bar or establishment where we ended up. But I think Lex was missing that spark um, that needs to really push you over the edge in WWE or WWF at that time because uh, I've never been in Lex's spot, but I have been on that 24-7 routine, and I know that it's, it's never-ending, and there's you've got to be ready at any minute. I don't, I don't know that Lex... Again, this is just my assumption. I don't know this to be fact, but I don't know that Lex was ever into um, being ready, being ready at a moment's notice, or being willing to to do everything that was was suggested he do. I don't know, but I'm just saying he, they they put him on the bus, they took it around, and and they had all these stops. What could be the only reason uh, to stop from putting the belt on Lex? They put it on Diesel. Um, why wouldn't they put it on Lex? So I don't know. I, 
maybe it did. I think after Yoko beat him, where else is he going to go? There was, uh, there was uh, now he's, he's he's chased it. He had the chance, and it didn't happen. So where else do you go with that? I don't know. But yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting, right? Because I mean, he's going to win this match. So it was like, okay, they're still building him up, right? But, but it was almost deflated. So it's like I don't know. It almost seems a little bit of start and stop. Yeah. Yeah, and that, that could have been, again, I, the, it, it's a strange, strange animal sometimes when you're in favor one day and you, you could be loved, uh, you know, early in the morning, hated later that morning, they love you again in the afternoon, you're fired that night. I mean, it happens, and you, I, I don't know, and I, I don't have any facts to back it up, but I can just see the 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 uh, path they were taking and what they did and you have to ask yourself, well, why didn't they pull the trigger with Lex? Why didn't they? Well, some people say they did. They gave him Lex Express, and that was a uh, a testing ground to see how well he was going to get over. I don't know that Lex was that in love with people either. You know, I don't know he was a people <laughs> person, and that can come across sometimes. And you have to be personable and and. You know, Hogan knew how to do that. Uh, a lot oh, yeah. of your baby faces. Yeah, Hogan could be in a heartbeat. Uh, he he knew what was expected of him. And Lex, even though he might have, might not have he might have known it. I don't know if it was in his nature back then to be personable and empathetic and and compassionate with people. But they they, they was needed of a. Of a babyface at that time, I think the best gimmick for him was being the narcissist because I think that was closer and truer to Lex's personality during that time in his life. So uh, I, I I don't know. I just know that after Yoko beat him, I don't know that there were that many paths for him to take uh, with WWE. And you think about it, those are some huge shoes to fill. If you're going to play the Hulk Hogan role and be the guy that comes up after Hogan and says, ooh, man, like, I don't know if anybody's going to quite fill those shoes the way you want them to be filled. No, I, I think the closest guy probably would have to be Cena and because John was tireless in everything he did and still found uh, time for the gym, still found time to do what he needed to do, still time found time for uh, public and personal appearances. And uh, Hogan was was the same way. Hogan was tireless. And uh, without him, you know, none of this would have gotten this far. I, I truly believe that. And, and Lex, um, I don't know that Lex had the same makeup. Lex wasn't the same uh, kind of guy. He, he just had a different way of looking at the world, and I don't believe he was as passionate. I'm sure he was passionate because you have to be to be uh, a main event guy, but I don't know if he was as passionate about the business as he should have been or, or could have been. So um, that, that's my thoughts. I, I thought Lex did a great job on Lex Express, but uh, just fell short. I think that is a, a great stopping point for this week. I want to mention your book, a pro wrestling curriculum, advice, suggestions, and stories to help the aspiring pro get to the next level. Dr. Tom, where can they get the book? You can get my book at amazon.com. Just type in 
Dr. Tom's book in the search column or the search bar, search box, and you'll find it, Amazon.com, Dr. Tom's book, and they'd be more than happy to send it to you. A Pro Wrestling Tea Store is open. You could pick up a JPWA shirt or you could pick up a, a Dr. Tom shirt. I love the Wanted Dead or Alive shirt. Right now at ProWrestlingTees.com, there is a 40%. I believe it'll be only for a few more days, so please head over to ProWrestlingTees.com and get yourself a shirt. You could also check out Patreon, patreon.com, and check out the JPWA. You could become a patron and support them on that site. Also, on their actual site, it's jpwrestlingacademy.com. You can find out all about JPWA's upcoming new semester, right, Dr. Tom? That is correct. In fact, we have a new class starting up January 4th, uh, 2021, and that goes until March 26th. And uh, we have all the information on the website, plus our uh, email address is jpwrestlingacademy at gmail.com. If you have any questions or inquiries about that, we're also on Facebook and Twitter. And uh, we're looking forward to to a great winter session coming up on January 4th. Be great. Also, I am going to be headed to Winston-Salem, North Carolina, this Friday, the 4th. 5th and 6th, Winston-Salem. Very excited about that with Coach Josh Preston, uh, C.W. Anderson. Oh, goodness, who else is going to be there? Ricky Morton. Uh, Ricky Morton. And um, so looking forward to that this this Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And uh, I'm going to be at the show on Sunday night in Winston-Salem as well. So it should be a great weekend. Nice. And I want to also remind everybody you can follow us on Twitter at Two Man Power Trip and at Dr. Tom Pritchard. That is all for us this week. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be right back here next week on Take You to School with Dr. Tom Pritchard. See you next week, folks. Thanks for listening to the Two Man Power Trip of Wrestling. What the world is downloading.